Well, good morning, everybody. For those of you who may not know who I am, or indeed those of you who have forgotten who I am because we haven't met for a while, my name is Angie, and I have been around in Rawns as part of this church since we first started to meet here back in the early 90s. So I'm pretty much part of the furniture. It's lovely to see everyone this morning, and we will be continuing today on our series on the Sermon on the Mount. And we see that at the beginning of John, um, John, Matthew chapter 5, it says that when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him and he began to teach them. And it was customary for Jewish rabbis to sit down and their disciples would come to them. And that is how they taught. And I'd just like us to think today that we are Jesus' disciples and we've come to him and he's going to teach us. So let us pray before we begin. Heavenly Father, we thank you that we have the privilege of being able to have Bibles and to study them and to hear from you in your word. And we ask you this morning that your Holy Spirit would help us to understand what you have to say to each one of us here as we look into your word. In Jesus' name, amen. So today, we are going to be looking at Matthew chapter 5, starting at verse 21. And it was another thing that Jewish rabbis would always do, was that they would set out their interpretation of the Torah, the first five books of the Bible. And it just struck me that we have the privilege of hearing Jesus, the most wonderful rabbi that ever there was, the Son of God himself, interpreting the Torah for us. And this is what he says in, in <clears throat> Matthew 5.21. You've heard that it was said to the people long ago, you shall not murder. That's in Exodus 20, and it's the sixth commandment. And anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to a brother or sister, Raka, is answerable to the court. And anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. Now that seems pretty strong words to me, and it made me think, well, we all get angry, don't we? So is Jesus saying here that it's a sin to be angry? And it didn't quite add up with me, because it's a feeling that can come over us. If I drop, drop a jar of jam on the kitchen floor and it smashes everywhere, I'm immediately angry with myself that I've done it, but I clear it up and I get on with life and I don't brood over it for the rest of the day. And also I thought, well, didn't Jesus get angry with the money changers in the temple? If he turned over the tables, he must have been angry with them and he didn't sin. And I know that in Ephesians 2.26, it says, in your anger, do not sin. So it struck me that maybe this isn't the anger that Jesus is talking about here because anger is an emotion and we all feel it at times. Jesus is not talking about the kind of anger that is a quick flare-up and then goes. The Greek word that's used here for anger means a brooding, 
holding a grudge type of anger. The type of anger where you won't let it go, where you play that scene over and over in your mind and you feel bitter and resentful and it's a grudge that you hold. And it's also, for those of you that like grammar, in the present participle. And so it means to go on being angry. So you see the difference. It's not a quick flare-up. It's a holding on to an anger and a grudge. And Jesus says, when you use this term, raka, which is a common insult in the days of Jesus, and I read in my notes in the Passion Translation that it can carry with it the meaning of spittle or lunatic is the idea there. And the word for fool is where we get our word moron. And if we look in the Old Testament, when it, it says things like in Proverbs 1, fools despise wisdom. The word fool is really to do with the suggestion that the person is morally deficient. It's not just you've done something silly. And so these are quite venomous words to use to people. And Jesus says that you can be you'll be up before the court, and the court in Jesus' day was the Sanhedrin, which consisted of 71 people, mainly priests and some Pharisees. And Jesus lived in his day in a, in a culture of honor and shame. They would honor people, they would shame people, hence this common insult, raka. And we think today that in 21st century Britain, we don't live in a culture of honor and shame. But just as a little aside, I've noticed I'm not very very good on computers and internet and social media. I do have a Facebook account, but I have heard on the news how people tweet things. They might tweet something about somebody that is a bit nasty and they, they shame them for what they've done. And then doesn't everybody else or lots of other people jump on the bandwagon and start doing the same until it gets quite venomous against the person? So just a thought there that we may be moving towards a culture of honor and shaming. Jesus says here, that anybody who says you fool will be in danger of the fire of hell. The word for hell here is Gehenna. And it was a place where back in Israel's past, they would offer sacrifices of their babies, their children. They would throw them into the fire. This was done as a practice in the worship of Molech, who was a pagan god. But back in the day of King Ahaz, back in 2 Chronicles 38, the Israelites were doing it as well. And so it's a picture of a fire that never goes out. And it's actually a place to the south of Jerusalem, which in Jesus' day was a rubbish dump. They didn't have wheelie bins and, and lorries coming round collecting them. So the way they disposed of their rubbish was to throw them into this valley. And the, the fire never went out day or night. They were constantly burning the rubbish. So this is a picture that Jesus has for us of hell. So it would come as a shock to the people who were listening to Jesus to think that just a common everyday insult that you might say to somebody in the marketplace would result in such a harsh punishment. R.T. France, who is a, a theologian, had this to say, Jesus' pronouncement is thus that ordinary insults may betray an attitude of contempt 
which God takes extremely seriously. The totally unexpected conclusion in hellfire comes as a shocking jolt to the complacency of the hearer, who might well have chuckled over the incongruous image of a person being tried for anger or for a conventional insult, only to be pulled up short by the saying's conclusion. You can imagine it, can't you? Really, Jesus? I call somebody a fool and I'm in danger of hellfire? But why does Jesus say this? Why is Jesus so determined that we eradicate and eliminate this kind of anger from our hearts? Ephesians 4 and verse 30 to 32 says this, And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Get rid of all bitterness, rage and anger, brawling and slander, along with every form of malice. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ God forgave you. So get rid of anger. <clears throat> Why do we need to get rid of this kind of anger in our hearts? Because it's a cancer in our hearts. It destroys us and it brings hell on earth. I'll show you what I mean. Jesus is concerned with who we are. And I read in Alexander Venter's book, During Spirituality, that the person we become now in this life has a continuum to the person we will be for all eternity. So we need to guard our hearts. Doesn't Proverbs say, guard your heart, for it's the wellspring of life. So let's think through what happens then when we get angry. Well, first of all, we get angry. Somebody says something or doesn't speak to us or does something we don't like and we get angry. Stage one. Stage two, our ego is wounded. We become offended. It's my offended look. I'm offended now by what she said to me or what she hasn't said or what she's done or he. And then we start to see ourselves as the self-righteous victim. I'm not in the wrong. It was all them. They said that to me. I'm innocent. I'm the innocent victim in this situation. It wasn't me. I didn't do anything wrong. She just said that to me or he said that to me. So I'm now seeing myself as the self-righteous victim. No, self-righteous. And it's all black and white, it's they're wrong, I'm right, nothing to do with me, I'm not guilty, they are the guilty person in this, I am innocent. And then it moves on to contempt for the person. Do you remember in that quote we had, um, it said that it may, these insults may betray an attitude of contempt. Contempt is hatred, and that is what Jesus is after in us dealing with in our hearts. So this, we now give our hearts over to contempt because this person has wronged me, and then I start to judge the other person. It's not just about now what they said or what they did. It's now about who they are because I'm all right, but they're not and I become contentious towards them. 
I once had a friend who lived in a community and she said that if she didn't get right with someone else in a community situation, it got to the stage where you couldn't even stand the way they buttered their bread because it was just you start to, you see, you start to hate them, you start to be contemptuous, you start to see yourself as better, and what you're actually doing is judging the other person. And I'll leave you to remember what Jesus said about judging. We start now to judge the person that's wronged us. And then it comes out of our mouths. We may, it may come out in an insult, it may come out in what we say to them, but it may come out in another way. It may be, I'll just get my friend over here and I'll just tell her what this woman said to me and I'll just have a little gossip. And in having a little gossip, I'm maligning that person to someone else. I'm trying to get them on my side. I'm trying to get them to see what a bad person this other person is. And it's all getting very like hell on earth. It's all getting very, very hurtful and dangerous. And then after it's come out of our mouths, we've started to release hell on earth because anger and hatred doesn't just lead to hell in the future, it releases hell here on earth. I don't know if you can relate to this, but if you, if you know that somebody is angry with you, it, it hurts you. They don't have to do anything they don't have to say anything, you just know they don't like you and they're angry with you. If you're married, you probably identify with what I'm saying. You just, because the longer you get your marriage, you just know what the other person's feeling. And it's, it's kind of releasing an atmosphere. It's an atmosphere there, an atmosphere of contempt and of, of hate. And then if this escalates and escalates, where does it go eventually in life and in society? It can lead to domestic abuse. It can lead to murder. Murder doesn't come out of nowhere. There's, there's been hatred brewing. And we know that we can look around on the news, we can look around in the world today, and we can see hatred, can't we? Don't, don't you, we, re, we realise and we know that grudges can be passed on from one generation to another. Tribe A hates Tribe B and maybe the younger generation in Tribe A don't even know why they hate Tribe B, but it's been passed on from generation to generation and it's grown and then we get hatred and then we get violence and then we get murder and that's hell on earth. So, but you might say to me, well, hang on a minute, what about the anger where we're angry at injustice, we're angry at poverty, racism, slavery, all those kinds of things? Yeah, there's a righteous anger, but is anger the best way to deal with it? If I want to do something about you know, child poverty, if I gather a group of people around me and make them angry, is that going to solve the situation? Is that the best way to deal with it? Because when you get a lot of angry people together and they start to demonstrate and can lead on to violence, and the scripture for that is James 1.20, it says that human anger does not lead to the righteousness that God desires. 
So we've made it pretty clear then what happens when anger of this type that Jesus was talking about brews and grows in our heart, where it leads. But Jesus never leaves us with the problem. He always provides the answer and the solution. It's never his will to leave, to tell us about our sin and leave us there. He always gives us a way out. So we're going to look now at Matthew 5, verses 23 to 26. Therefore, if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled to them, then come and offer your gift. Settle matters quickly with your adversary who is taking you to court. Do it while you are still together on the way, or your adversary may hand you over to the judge, and the judge may hand you over to the officer, and you may be thrown into prison. Truly, I tell you, you will not get out until you have paid the last penny. Now, we know that Jesus' audience would be Jewish, and when they heard about this situation of having something, your brother having something against you, their minds would go to Cain and Abel. Cain murdered Abel because Abel's sacrifice was acceptable to God and Cain's wasn't, and it led to murder. And so we need to realize from this that our relationship with God is tied up with our relationship with our brother and sister. You know, when we can't hear God very well, when he seems distant, when things don't, we don't feel right with God, could it be sometimes, maybe, that we're not right in some way with our brother and sister? The two go together. In 1 John 2.10... I'll turn to it just briefly so I get it right. <clears throat> it tells us about walking in the light and loving our brothers. 1 John 2.10, it says, Anyone who loves their brother and sister lives in the light and there is nothing in them to make them stumble. See, if we're stumbling, sometimes it's because we're not right with a brother or sister. So what's Jesus' answer to this? His answer is to sort it out before we offer our gift because our relationship with God is tied up with our relationship with our brothers and sisters in Christ. So he gives here an example. If you offer your gift at the altar, you bring your gift to the altar. Now in Jesus' day, the altar was at the temple in Jerusalem. Some people didn't live near Jerusalem. They'd have to come a long way to bring their gift to the altar. They might have to come from the Galilee or some, some distance away with their offering. And they troop, I don't know, 80 miles, however far it is, and they bring their offering and they get to the altar and they suddenly remember that they've had an argument with somebody over something and somebody's not happy with them. So what does Jesus say they have to do? He says you have to leave your gift at the altar and go and sort it out with the person that may have something against you. You see, it's that serious to Jesus. It's that serious that we get right 
with him. Maybe that it was just a bit of a silly example, but he's making the point that we must be right with one another before we offer our praise to God. How do we sort it out? Well, he tells us in verse 25, settle out of court, basically. Don't let it get to a full-on dispute. I would say, nip it in the bud. Well, how do we do that? How do we nip it in the bud? So I, I'm, I know that I'm not right, say, with somebody. Um, they may have upset me. I may have upset them. What can I do? Well, simple thing is to maybe have a cup of coffee with them. Maybe let's just talk about this. And um, if you're like me, you don't like confrontation. I'd rather go with the British stiff upper lip approach. Let's just smooth it all over. Pretend it's fine. It's fine. It's fine. I'm fine. But actually, I'm not fine. I need to sort this out. Oh, but I don't want to because I'm embarrassed. Oh, I don't, I don't like talking to people about things. Like, I rather, can't I just pretend it's fine? Jesus said, no, you can't pretend it's fine. You've got to go and sort it out. Okay. So I go to the person. Now, how do I go to the person? You said this to me and you shouldn't have done that and I'm angry with you. Is that going to win them over? No. I have to forget what I thought earlier about being the self-righteous victim and maybe consider, just consider, that I might have done something to upset them first, that I might somewhere be in the wrong. Mm, okay then, Jesus, perhaps, perhaps I was in the wrong. But I go to that person and I invite them to talk about it rationally. And I find a good way to do things like this is to say this is the problem and the problem is here it's over there it's not me it's not you it's that's the problem now can we talk about the problem because that kind of depersonalizes it and stops the accusations of you you did this you're always like that we talk about this as a problem and we see if we can resolve it and we we need to listen to the other person. That's another key as well. You see, if I go in all guns blazing, full of my own opinions, full of my own hurt, and it's not easy when you're hurt, I recognize that, but being prepared to listen. And another important point is to not let the sun go down on my anger. Doesn't it say that in Ephesians 4.26? Don't let the sun go down on your wrath. I need to go to the person talk about it rationally and see if we can sort it out. And if we're children of God and if we love Jesus, then Jesus will help us to sort it out. It's always good to pray for the person that's upset you. Anybody you can't get on with in church, and there will be people we can't get on with in church because it's life, pray for them. That works really well. Pray the blessings of God on them as much as you possibly can. And so, all I would like to, to say today, really, is that Jesus says, deal with the anger in your heart. And I know that for some people, there may be things going on, I don't know, that 
have come from a long way back. They may be serious things. They may be hurts that have been done to you many years ago. I don't know your heart. And that can be hard to deal with. But Jesus always gives us a way to forgive and let go. But I'd just like to pray now that the word of God would be sealed in our heart and that we would receive today what the Holy Spirit wants us to receive from this. So we ask you to come, Holy Spirit, and we ask you now that you would shed your light abroad in our hearts, that if there is anywhere that we know that we need to put it right with a brother or sister, or ask for forgiveness, or forgive someone else, we ask that by the power of your Holy Spirit, you would come and show us. And we do thank you that you never speak to us in order to condemn us, but you want us to live with you and enjoy the joy and peace and love of your presence. And we pray for each one here, all of us, that we might be able to walk in the light with our brothers and sisters, that there might be nothing in us to make us stumble. In Jesus' name, amen.